At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Good morning, all you beautiful people out there. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. I am absolutely thrilled today to have Ginny Virginia Burton. (laughs) How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Mark? Uh, So glad we could finally connect and, and make this happen. You are a busy, busy girl. I had, uh, I was just uh, mentioning to you off air, a fellow by the name of Joe Roberts who pushed a shopping cart across the country about eight or so episodes ago. And he has a similar story to yours, but he flipped the switch in his 20s uh, when suddenly went, holy crap, what am I doing? And had his holy moly moment and uh, turned everything around. And that's very unusual that somebody is able to go from homeless and living under a bridge was his situation to turning himself around and becoming uber successful now if i remember from your interviews you were about 41 when you had that big turnaround for yourself um, i was 40 oh you were 40 which is spectacular mm-hmm. and really really rare what was that moment for you virginia where all of a sudden it's like, okay, I'm 40 and I can't do this anymore. I've got to switch gears because you switch gears in a spectacular fashion. What was that moment for you? Well, there were a lot of moments um, that happened over a long period of time. Um, I just didn't have, uh, I think, the awareness and the skill set in order to change it during a, n- a number of the previous moments. Um, but when I was 40 years old, I was arrested um, for the last time in 2012, and I was looking at my fourth prison sentence, I knew that I had warrants out for my arrest, and I was really tired. I um, I was being chased by the guy that I was married to, um, terrorized by him. I was stuck in a deep, deep pit of addiction, and whenever addiction is present in my life, um, that also brings about a tremendous amount of criminal activity, violence, and Uh, a number of other really, really uncomfortable and destructive things that were very familiar to me for a long time. Um, But when, uh, and I didn't want to be in that situation when I was in it, but because of my, because of the beast of addiction, I was unable to pull myself out of it. So when I was actually arrested, finally, December 5th of 2012, uh, I knew that was my opportunity in the moment, I did not want to be going to jail. I would have much rather have been getting high. Um, however, there was another part of me that was much deeper that knew that this was my way out. And it didn't matter to me whether it was death, whether it was prison, or what situation removed me, but I knew that was my opportunity. And so uh, because of the, the years of destruction that occurred previously, Um, I had just gotten to this point in my life where it didn't matter what it took. I was going to figure it out. I have a cousin who's been in and out of jail. We're the same age and uh, in and out of jail his whole life. He's back in again. Always seems to make the news every few years so we can keep tabs on him. It's like, oh, look what he's up to now. Uh, Nothing ever uh, horrible, just enough to put him back in the clink. But uh, every time he gets out, every single time he hangs out with the same people. So he's got no hope. 
no hope whatsoever because he keeps getting back with the same people. What were some of the rules that you decided on that kept you straight? Yeah, I had to change people, places, and things. Um, and, I, and I understand that, uh, you know, you go back into the same environment. If you haven't changed patterns um, while you have that separation, and sometimes it's really hard to change patterns because we're not really given any new information when we go into these settings, when we go into institutions, jails or prisons or even psych wards and often treatment centers. Um, we're, we're, um, our, our situation is addressed one dimensionally, essentially. So when you're arrested, you're just being incarcerated. It's essentially a consequence to, to uh, an action or a behavior. And so, um, which, that's an opportunity right there for an implementation of services, which is not something that often occurs. So, um, you know, so what I had to do is I, I had to recognize that I had to do whatever it took. Uh, so I had to recreate my environments. Um, I had to find people similar to myself that I could identify with um, that were doing something different. So that I had essentially uh, a community of people that could model to me uh, new ways to show up in the world, but also give me a community to feel connected to because we're social creatures. And so, you know, with your and I believe you said it was your cousin, um, you know, if, if those new patterns were not, you know, implemented in his life, um, it's very easy to fall back into familiarity, which is what happens for people over and over again. You know, because we don't take the opportunity in this nation to implement services in the time of separation, right? You separate the person from the destructive environment, jail. Uh, I'm, I'm very fond of incarceration. Um, it could definitely be utilized more as a tool uh, if, in fact, we took that opportunity to implement services and teach people to be accountable and give them a skill set to actually practice once they're let back out into the community. So what should that look like? Because right now we have yeah. a, puni- a system of punishment, not a system of ju- judgment and certainly not a system of, um, of fixing people. You know, we're we're not rehabilitating anybody. And if there if we were to switch gears like some nations have done, uh, Norway, Mm -hmm. Sweden, et cetera, um, they try to fix people because if you're in jail, something's broken inside you. That's why Mm -hmm. you're there. Uh, What should that look like? What should the prison system look like? Yeah, I mean, and, and I would challenge whether or not that's, you know, that we're essentially punishing, uh, we're more warehousing. Um, there are definitely states, I think, that um, are more geared towards punishment. Um, mm. uh, but we're doing a lot of warehousing. So we're just kind of holding people in, in a cesspool, essentially. It's kind of like, you know, throwing <laughs> folks in stagnant water and expecting them not to be impacted by the bacteria, right? And so well, we come out with a whole nother skill set, but it's just not one that helps us to be successful in our communities. And so um, I... It, in my ideal uh, separation setting for myself, and and, and I'll tell you why I I believe this. Um, When, as I'm writing my book, uh, I'm identifying these different times when an intervention could have been very effective in my life where I was separated, um, but because the uh, appropriate information was not, intervened into my circumstances, um, 
I ended up doing the same thing. And so, you know, so let's just say Ginny goes out and relapses and, you know, and I commit some crimes because of course, when I relapse, I require a a tremendous amount of drugs in order to blot out the reality of everything that I just threw away. Um, Trying to, you know, address whatever thing that I was very uncomfortable with addressing uh, that propelled me toward, you know, uh, picking up drugs again. And, you know, so I'm arrested because I've, you know, accrued a number of felony charges and, And I'm facing um, a sentence, right? And so at that time, what needs to happen, in my opinion, is I need to be assessed. I need to have a holistic, uh, in-depth needs assessment, which occurs that addresses, you know, all of the underlying areas of of issues, right? Like uh, housing situations, past relationships, education, uh, financing and budgeting, parenting, you know, whatever things actually apply to my circumstances. And, you know, once we identify the areas of need um, and we have the separation and what does separation mean? Separation means that we remove the person from that relationship with chemicals. We remove the person from the relationship with the abuse or the trauma or whatever kind of circumstances they were experiencing uh, while they were, you know, in that destructive environment, right? Because when you have a clear mind, it is far more likely that the implementation of services are going to be more effective. And so, um, you know, so we then implement services that are necessary. We create the sentence around that. We, I think we need to give people options depending on the level of crime. Uh, and the options need to be, do we divert to an intensive outpatient program in the community, or do we keep the person inside for a period of time and then graduate them into different levels where then we can eventually transition them into the community where they're able to take care of themselves? And we teach people about accountability. We teach people about not just keeping people in the community safe, but treating themselves in a way where they keep themselves safe. When we teach people how to take responsibility for their lives and how to live in a way where they're contributing to their own success success and stability, but also contributing to the community, I, I think that's the ideal situation. And, and we need to have supports around that where we're not just focusing on when they're inside, but we transition them out into the community and we continue to support them. We help them to gain educations that help them to have living wage jobs. We teach them how to be present in the lives of their children. We help recreate Create their ability to have effective relationships. We, we just teach them how to show up in society in a way where they can actually be a contributing member, again, in their own lives and in society. Those are the things that I did not learn growing up. Those are the things that I wish I had known. And those were the things that I was seeking. But through my own fear, insecurity, and instability, I continued to move into familiar patterns, which helped me to spiral out of control out of control, use destructive forces in my own life, but also victimize people in society. I have often, and I'd like your, um, your perspective on this, I've often seen a lot of parallels between the military and prison uh, and, and the transition and the difficulty to find those new people that are absolutely critical to change your story. If you don't change your environment, you will not change your story. That's and, right. So when you're in the military and uh, to an extreme, the infantry, which I was, it is very regimented. It is very 
d- difficult to go through it, but you know what all the rules are. There's you're you're in a tiny little box with very strict timings. You're told when to get up, when to go to bed, what to eat, how to like. It's so similar to prison in in, in many many different ways, except uh, at the end of the day or a- after an exercise, we get to go home. <laughs> so it's kind of like day prison, but um, the because of the way you are trained to think as a soldier. When you get out, transition is a son of a bitch because you, you will hear things like, oh, those stupid fucking civvies. Well, that's not healthy <laughs> at all. But um, what, what you're actually hearing is, I don't understand these people. They don't understand me. So what happens as a result uh, is people isolate themselves or they go back they, so many people that got out after three or five years get right back in, in the military. And it seems like it's so similar uh, to the prison system because people just want to be around people that they understand and who understand them. Do you see the same parallels? Oh, absolutely, I do. Um, and I think I've really done a lot of pondering uh about all of the things that we're challenged in right now in our nation. We're challenged with policing. We're challenged with uh, the criminal justice system. We're challenged with the homeless industrial complex and addiction and, and military uh, separate, the separation because of service in the military. And, and I think what we're not doing is we're not, we're essentially not like supporting the transition, right? We're not keeping things relational. We're not, um, we're not really helping anyone when we essentially train. And I think uh, your description, sorry, sometimes that can be a little all over the place. Your description <laughs> of the way that folks in the military are trained is a really, really great um, way to um, help people understand or identify um, the creation of patterns in our life, right? Um, with or without our consent, if we practice something long enough, it will create patterns and we easily fall into those patterns. And, and it's the same with addiction. It's the same with abuse. It's the same with military training. Um, and when we do not work intentionally to try to recreate those patterns, we will consistently feel uh, levels of insecurity and discomfort in the world which causes us to want to be back in areas of familiarity and in like with combat training and things like that, that's, that's an area of violence and we become very comfortable uh, for lack of a better word. I, that's why I try to use the word familiar more so than comfortable because we don't always like the way we act. We just know how to navigate it. In the and veteran, that, in the veteran community, I've heard the exact words that um, people would say, I am very comfortable with violence I've heard those exact words in that same way. And that is something that most people don't understand. Um, If you've not lived where violence was our job, but in the criminal world, violence is also your job. It is a part, it is a part of the job description and to be able to commit violence, uh, just because you're in a uniform doesn't make it any less horrific than if, right. than if you're doing it in a, in a criminal way. It still has the same damage to your soul when you hurt somebody else. And um, I think that it, if we were to just have more compassion by seeing these parallels, but it was like, mm-hmm. okay, we have all the support and respect for veterans. Wait a second. 
very similar the the psychology the psychological process that goes on with uh, folks that are involved in crime uh, or drugs or both it, it it's so similar um, I wanted to ask you you were on Tucker Carlson today I watched the whole thing and uh, Tucker I, I quite enjoy his show sometimes however he's mm-hmm. such a douche when it comes to um, to addiction he's those you know those Druggies. He's actually very passionate about addiction and trying to solve that problem. He, in our he doesn't come across that way on his show. He calls people crackheads and meth heads and whatnot. But uh, you, but you find that he is compassionate though when it comes to addiction. Yeah. Well, and I'll just like do a placeholder here. And I think sometimes um, you know I don't think it's probably any different in the military, but. I will not pretend that I cannot identify my own people sometimes as meth heads or crackheads. So, <laughs> and I hold that space to be able to do so because I can identify. So, so I, you know, so I don't necessarily, um, I don't judge people for being, you know, for feeling like they have the ability to do that unless, unless it's in a really sensitive situation and they're purposely offending folks. Um, I don't watch the news. So I honestly, I didn't even know who Tucker was when he invited me onto the show. <laughs> That's the big, <laughs> it's the biggest show in mainstream news. <laughs> I, I learned that I had to Google him after I was invited on. Um, and I'm not upset that I don't. Um, but what I can tell you is that Tucker is actually a really passionate about about that problem, I think that we become very disheartened in this nation uh, because we look around and we see what's happening and we see the policies that are being created that don't actually help people. And it can be very frustrating when you see a body of folks that are consistently victimizing others, you know, and it, I, I have, a, you know, I'm, I'm just as human as anybody else. When I see somebody that is consistently destroying their lives, that does not mean that I immediately identify with my challenge in stopping using drugs. Sometimes I just I just want them to stop. Just why do you keep doing this to your life? Well, it's no different than the reason that I kept doing it to my life. But I'm in this place now where I have arrested my disease and I cannot use one day at a time. That doesn't mean that I don't have to focus every morning when I get up and say, all right, keep me clean today, God, help me make the right decisions. Um, because I do recognize that it's only one choice. Oh, I'm one choice away from ending up right back where I was. I have not recovered. I haven't transcended my past without the chance of going back. Like, it's very much a real thing. But I do, there sometimes is a separation where I'm like, why can't you just stop? Well, because the beast is as big in that person, right? And so, but it can, like, there are levels of frustration, And I want to say this, I really believe, based on my conversation with Tucker, his challenge is less with the folks that are in addiction and more with the people that are creating the policies around it. So the entire situation can be very frustrating. I know that I am. I'm frustrated with a lot of the metropolitan cities that are driving these policies that are essentially helping to kill my people. And I call them my people because anybody that's struggling with a vulnerability and addiction, um, those are folks that don't know how to get themselves out of their circumstances. And, And I consider those my people. And when you have a lack of awareness, but we have leadership that thinks that they know best, but their leadership is causing more destruction, that's problematic. And I think that his anger and frustration is more focused on that. But he is no more or less human than anybody else. 
So it just comes out that way. Last summer, my wife and I spent a week in downtown Victoria, which is on Vancouver Island. And I was the, I lived there about uh, almost 30 years ago, and it was spectacular. Now it is a dump. And mm-hmm. um, it is full of addicted people living in tents um, uh, on the street. And it has become a haven. Uh, people, uh, homeless people, people that are homeless and addicted flock from all over North America to hang out and, yeah. and, and live in Victoria because the weather is quite uh, decent all year round. So what is that city doing wrong? Because they're, they're making it a haven out of a place of compassion, but it's not working. It's making it worse somehow. Uh, how can municipalities do it right and what are they doing wrong? Yeah, well, what... And they're doing it in Seattle, and they're doing it in San Francisco also. Yeah, um, same crowd. They're, in, they're inviting people to come there and be sick and commit crimes and to not have any accountability. For the addict, that is uh, a utopia. Um, the addict, again, I want to say this. If I were to use drugs today, the person you're having a conversation with would not be the person that you would be interacting with. You would be interacting with a very different part of me that was incapable of touching where I'm at right now because I would be governed by this huge beast. And I, and I also want to say this, that I spent a tremendous period of time, and it was like purgatory through this last relapse that I had in 2011 and 2012 because I did not want to be using, but I could not stop myself. I didn't want to live in squalor. I didn't want to have abscesses and sores all over my body. I did not want to have to compromise my integrity to even breathe and live and eat. I didn't want to have to victimize other people, but I did not have control over my own behavior. I knew that it was a one-way ticket to hell. What municipalities are doing wrong is they're supporting this kind of dereliction and they're calling it compassion. So, but who's compassionate about the children that these addicts have abandoned? Well, they're just ending up in the foster system and they're cycling out. And at a certain age, they're no longer important. And we're just preparing them for the prison system and addiction and homelessness. So, you know, I mean, and that's just, that's just one small factor. Addiction is not a victimless crime. What we need to be doing different is we need to be creating an opportunity for separation And as I went over this before, separation from the destructive environment, separating the person from the uh, destructive sources such as addiction, criminal behavior, abuse, and violence, implementing necessary services after an assessment that actually, an assessment that is created by people with lived experience. That's, That's one of the things I think is problematic is that we're not involving lived experience. And I don't mean the addict that is in active addiction. I don't mean the person that is utilizing the services at the time. I mean people that have transcended that space and have actually learned to be accountable in their own lives and are no longer um, dependent on the services that are being uh, offered. And then we need to teach those people how to be accountable. That's, that's exactly what municipalities are doing 
incorrectly. Uh, in the past, we had an over-incarceration with no implementation of services. Now we've went all the way to this other side of the pendulum where we have no criminalization, no separation, and no accountability. What needs to happen is we need to not do away with our prison system. We're not other countries. We have the highest rate of murders. We have the highest rate of violent crimes. We have a lot of things going on. We try to address things from the top down, and a lot of those policies are put in place by people that do not know what it's like to be in that kind of situation. You cannot hire a hairdresser to build a bridge. and You just can't. Or have a social worker to do the job of a cop. As well, like, and you uh, can't no. because, I, no, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a little story on that, and I appreciate that you brought that up. So I served in a social service setting for a long period of time. I had really close relationships with my clients. Some of my clients were mentally ill, violent, and addicted. Um, the, it, there was, right before I went back to the university, or went back to school and I went to the University of Washington, I had a client, six foot four man, uh, very aggressive, um, very vocal, has the ability and the willingness to be violent when necessary, did not always have control of his faculties. And he was an amphetamine and a stimulant user. He liked to use methamphetamine and he liked to use cocaine. Uh, what those two drugs do is they keep people up for an extended period of time. They cause a person to not have to eat. What that causes after being up for a number of days, not drinking and eating appropriately is, is you experience hallucinations and delusions. Uh, you often will imagine that things are happening in ways that they don't actually are, or not actually happening. This gentleman came into the office. He had a relationship with me where he felt comfortable to express his anger. This could be very intimidating to a lot of the staff. I felt comfortable enough to engage with him in a setting where I was not enclosed in an office. He believed that a woman had been raped and beaten up the street. He had a knife in his hand. He had already cut himself. The staff were going crazy. He was already kicked out of the facility. Um, he allowed me to accompany him up the road. Uh, I brought two other staff with me just for my own safety and in case 911 needed to be called, in case another person was harmed. I convinced him eventually to give me the knife. Um, three police officers did show up. I knew that he needed a mental health intervention. One police officer was a veteran. Two police officers were fairly new. Um, and, and again, I want to reiterate that this is a man that I had gained a tremendous amount of rapport with. Uh, the majority of our uh, social workers, and you know, not to stereotype, but they're twenty-something-year-old, um, privileged. For lack of, I hate that word, but the bottom line is they come from environments where they don't experience these kind of things. Sometimes you'll get some that are a little bit older. Often they're white. Uh, people of color do not identify with the majority of white people. I had a little bit of a different relationship because this person knew that I was a former addict and that I had been to prison. So that gains an amount of credibility and my color essentially goes away. But that's not what we're seeing in most metropolitan cities. We're seeing a whole bunch of white folks that have never been any Anywhere, that are social workers that want to intervene because they want to do good. And I call them do-gooders, um, not in a negative way. They have good, great intentions. But anyway, so I'm standing on a corner with the, this gentleman, two of my staff who are very intimidated. The police show up, and one of the police is actually ready to shoot this guy. He's new, of course. I talk him down. Had it been a social worker that showed up to that mental health call, that man, most likely, they would have never been able to unarm him. 
because he would have not have engaged with that person. And the police would have had to be called and somebody would have got shot and it probably would have been my client. So I don't think that social workers, not that they're not beneficial in some settings, but even with mental health calls, they're not always the appropriate avenue to take. So, you know, the thing that's missing from the majority of these environments is the perspective of someone with lived experience and not just the perspective of someone with lived experience who has been trained and patterned to listen to the narratives that are being pushed, but somebody who actually knows what it's like and can question the education that they've received and engage with the human from a place of understanding and knowledge. And so we're, but we're, we're really just not implementing that in a lot of areas. I think that we do have some push towards some of those kind of uh, groups being um, formed in some areas. And I don't remember exactly what cities I've heard about this in, but there are some, but it's just not common enough. Cultural competence is what I'm hearing from you. Uh, the street cred. This is a yeah. huge component in the different peer support groups that I've been a part of, whether it be for addiction or uh, for myself, their PTSD or trauma recovery groups, which is really the same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, without that cultural competence, you're, you're in deep water. Uh, it, it, yeah. Like you said, if somebody's coming from the suburbs, <laughs> <laughs> driving their Lexus, um, yeah. ch- chances are they're not going to be able to understand me or anybody else right. who, who's had a tougher life than they've had. It's uh, right. If you haven't been punched in the nose, you just don't understand it. It's, right. it's too foreign for you. And I, you know, even before I really understood the depth and the necessity of lived experience, I can remember like engaging in certain areas, even when I was in prison, when I was very young. And and I remember when, you know, the first questions that I was, what I was, what I would always ask someone that was trying to tell me how to do something is, have you ever done this? Have you ever been on drugs? Because if you haven't, how can you tell me? You know, and that's not to say that people don't have helpful information, but based on what, where is your wisdom coming from, you know? And and I think as human beings, we just tend to discredit folks a lot of the times, you know? It's like, okay, you're telling me this, but how can you tell me? If I've been a war veteran, and I appreciated actually that you invited me on because I feel, based on my level of post-traumatic stress disorder, um, I identify with veterans, um, with my reactions and the way that I show up in the world. And, and also I've watched a number of different things and I've read a number of different things where a lot of veterans use uh, nature. They use mountains, they use hiking to essentially defragment a lot of those broken pieces that we experience because of trauma. Um, and so I've always felt, uh, this connection, you know, so I just want to thank you for inviting me on, even though I'm not your uh, typical first responder. Well, trauma is the thing that binds us. Um, yes. I've had, uh, I don't know if you know who Theo Fleury is. He was an NHL superstar. He was raped as a child 150 times. Um, oh we've, my gosh. we've become, we've, we've become friends. Um, we hang out a little bit and he's been on the show probably four times. He'll be on for my 200th uh, episode as well. But trauma is trauma is trauma, whether it was uh, sexual trauma as a child, um, which I also experienced, but uh, or military exper- um, uh, trauma, trauma on the streets. 
if you know what true terror is, if you've had your life, um, you were actually shot yourself, weren't you? Yeah. As I recall, you had a, you got a couple of bullet holes in you. You got perforated. You know, I, I have one bullet hole. I was uh, shot in my femoral artery. Um, oh Jesus! I've I've always I've also been stabbed, stabbed in my chest and stabbed in my back. So. Well, that's more than enough for PTSD is encoded in fear. So yes. uh, it often gets um, confused with other types of trauma, betrayal trauma. Yes. Uh, I, I had a, a whopper uh, about a year ago that I've uh, finally got past. Thank God. Um, so there's other types of trauma, but they're not PTSD. PTSD is encoded in fear, which... Um, which is where the hypervigilance, and this is where, of course, you can understand and relate to um, combat veterans or any first responder, that hypervigilance uh, of being able to be aware of your environment in a way that others just aren't. My wife cannot believe the things that I see and hear. She goes, like, what? Where? Uh, right yeah. there. <laughs> and it's all yeah. I could hear. It's screaming in my sometimes. ear. It's screaming in my ear, and you didn't even know yeah. that that was happening. Um, but that's hypervigilance, being, being aware of, uh, any potential threat, anything that, uh, any square peg that's trying to go in a round hole, we notice it, others don't. And and that is something certainly living on the streets, uh, where, (laughs) you know, it's as dodgy as hell that, uh, we share that. Absolutely. We share that. And for sure, I think that is a link between, uh, combat veterans and, um, and, and living on the streets for sure. That's a link that hypervigilance and it's, sh- it's shitty. It's so bad. It is not a good time having that hypervigilance, always, um, running scenarios uh, in your head so that you can be safe. And so that those around you can be safe. Uh, what I wanted to ask you is one of the, uh, there's very few maxims in life, but very few absolutes, but I have found, and I would like to, uh, to see if you agree, that you can only treat yourself the way you believe you deserve to be treated. In other words, uh, you can only rise to your level of self-concept, which brings us back to you, the first question I asked you. When you decided to turn yourself around, to change, the only way I know of to do that is to change your self-concept, to somehow have that spark of hope of, I am more than this. Is that what happened for you? Oh my gosh, what a fantastic question, first of all. Let me just say that. Um, I just got chills and it just brought joy to my spirit that you asked that. Because what happened for me when I went to jail, I recognized that I was living in misery. I mean, I know that I had been miserable for a long period of time, but I didn't understand that I was the orchestrator of that misery. I had no idea, but when I was arrested and some clarity happened for me in a couple of days, I recognized that it was me. I hated myself. And the only way that I was going to escape that misery is to change the way that I felt about Ginny. And it it helped me to scale back and say, wait a minute, I haven't always felt this way about myself. Let me trace that back and see where that started. And, And even more importantly, let's begin to change that narrative. Because if I learned it from somewhere else, at some point I consented to saying it myself. 
So why can't I do the same thing to change the way that I think about myself now? And so while I was incarcerated, um, mind you, I didn't have to go back to prison a fourth time. I ended up fighting and getting a drug court sentence. But during that entire process of incarceration while I was in jail, which was really, really necessary, and I'm so grateful for it. And I looked at it like this. I was like, this is the last time that I'm going to get this kind of unadulterated opportunity to work on Jenny. So let's take every moment possible and try to change not just how I feel about myself, but how I show up in life. And and I did. And I started to tell myself, I, I wrote a list. I started talking to myself in the mirror every day. And I started to tell myself something very different. So yes, absolutely. Um, I had to fundamentally change how I saw myself, how I engaged with myself, how I interacted with myself. I had to take a look at the things outside of me um, and say, gosh, this person is still in my life. This person is still in my life. They couldn't want anything from me because I don't have anything. So let me look at the characteristics that they are displaying that make me feel like I'm loved. And then I ask myself, am I treating myself that way? And so I just really started to implement some fundamentals like that. And today I'm going to tell you, my life is so different and I don't think I would be where I am today had my foundation not have been created in love for Ginny. Was this transition completely internal? Was this 100% introspection where uh, you just looked into yourself and said, I think I am more? Or was there a spark? Was there a, an example of like somebody that you resonated with or somebody that had just a single kind word for you? Was there any external uh, support that, that helped you find yourself? I would say in the moment, no, but what, this is what has occurred throughout my life. So since I was a young girl, um, I mean, a number of things that are, there are essentially mile markers for me. So at the age of four, it might've been three, I was tested, uh, prior to going into school, I was tested as gifted. Um, I was very shy there and I, you know, so I had um, some interactions with teachers. So, you know, uh, and then I had a church experience where I was saved on the back of a bus. Um, and then, you know, throughout time, there would be a teacher here or a person there that would share something that would touch me. But I, of course, would consistently essentially um, submit to my environment, right? If you can't beat them, join them. And so I think that when I had got to this place at the age of 40, uh, there were a culmination of things and I was able to reflect on all of those small tidbits, all of those moments and times where something had been shared, where there was a word of encouragement, where I was able to identify, I must not be a terrible person because these things are still happening. And so uh, I don't think I believed it, but I had this like realization that I didn't believe the things that I had been telling myself for decades initially, that I was able to go back to a period of time in my life as a little girl prior to using drugs, where I really believed to be that I was something special. And I said, oh, well, that must mean that I adopted on somebody else's opinion of me. So why can't I do the same exact thing? So what I did was is I created a list of things that I actually believed were lies. I didn't believe them in the moment. And I just started telling myself the lies until they became my truth. 
being gifted, I think, may have been a part of how you fell off the wagon uh, at a young age. Because yeah. yeah, drug, I've made a list here. I mean, pot at five, meth at 12, crack at 14, raped at 16, suicide attempt at 17, heroin addict by 23. I mean, holy shit, that's quite the resume. And um, disconnection is the pain. We talked earlier about uh, transitioning from the military or prison and and um, how that there, there's nobody to relate to. When there's nobody to relate to, that's a disconnection, and that disconnection oh. is the pain. When you're a gifted child, as was I, um, you're the different duck. Nobody gets you, and you don't know why you don't fit. So you think yes. so? The automatic go-to is there must be something wrong with me. I must yes. be less than when, in fact. You're gifted. Do you think that being gifted is a big part that disconnected you and and made you uh, feel isolated? I honestly, I didn't understand what that meant, but I definitely can identify with everything that you said. But, you know, early on, I didn't understand what that meant. I just knew that I enjoyed things that other people didn't seem to and that I performed at a high level. Um, And I think... One of the things I think I adopt with being with the gifted part of me, and and I only really started saying that out loud probably over this period of time where I've been clean, because I I almost felt like it was an egotistical statement. But I think what it really allowed me, more so than just, you know, the superficial things, was this level of introspection where there was this, there's always been this self-awareness, this sort of like, I want to say if you like can sort of like picture um, the Terminator, you know, and I always say the Terminator, the little screen in front of the Terminator's eyes where all the information, you know, is essentially digitized in front of their face before they act. I feel like that's kind of what my life was like for a long time. I would behave in pattern ways and all of this information, all of this data was being recorded and I was really aware of it. And I almost felt like there was this separation, right? Where I was like, you're acting in a very animalistic way, but your spirit says this. And so, um, so I would probably say, yes. I mean, I just don't know that I was really aware of, of uh, what it meant. And so I tried to do away with it, but I always, even in addiction felt different. I felt like I elevated at a different level. Um, I felt like I was more transparent than most people. And I was seeking that in others and I never found it. Um, I was seeking a lot of things that I never found. And, and honestly, it wasn't really, I, I don't think it's been until over this last decade that I've been able to align with, with people that understand me and that I understand on this level. Well, you started school and <laughs> kicked ass. You, you, yeah. Truman Scholar, all of it. You know, you, you went whole hog on it. And did you start to, uh, how was that transition going to university? I remember getting out of the yeah. army and going to college for me. Oh my God, yeah. what a mess. You know, yeah. I, I was fresh out of a war. And here I am with uh, these people that are about five years younger than myself. Uh, I mean, yeah. oh my God, talk about an odd duck. You know, I was like, who is this guy? How was that um, f- for you d- dealing with all these uh, bubble children that mm-hmm. uh, were half your age and uh, yeah. had, had lived bubble lives uh, where, where where they don't understand any kind of trauma? Like, you must have felt like yeah. a fish out of water in, in school. 
Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you. I was uh, more comfortable initially on the community college campus because you had more of a mixture of people. Uh, but when I entered into the university environment, um, it was a little strange. Uh, I definitely felt unqualified to be there. I um, Imposter syndrome? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I felt like, I don't know. I de I definitely didn't feel like I was succeeding in the way that the grades were showing. Um, I felt like there was a lack of retention. And, and I would listen to some of these kids, and they just sounded so brilliant. I had kids older than those kids. Uh, but I was I was excelling. Um, I did I did well. Uh, the first year, I definitely felt like they knew more than I did, you know. But then we had George Floyd and COVID happen, and I recognized my life experience, and I recognized that I had a skill set and and wisdom and experience that these kids probably would never ever have. And I recognized also that um, I recognized that they were. You know, the, the, the leaders we have in place in the United States were once these kids and, and they started out in the same way where they were fighting the man and they were against the system and now they are the system. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to do something, which is exactly how I ended up on a college campus in the first place because, you know, I was beaten in my home. Uh, I was almost four years clean and I realized like this guy is going to go in and come out the same person. Like he needs help. He doesn't need to be hated. And everybody loves to get on the bandwagon to hate the people that they want to villainize, right? But even villains who usually are just acting out on a pattern, on an inability to navigate an emotion or a feeling or an experience, they also need retraining. They need to be rehabilitated, right? We need, if I want to feel safe in society, how am I going to feel safe? Am I going to feel safe if that guy goes in for 10 years and comes out and hasn't done anything? And that's why I even went to school in the first place. Because I was like, oh my gosh, you know, these people are making decisions and they have no idea what it's like to be me. And I had been working for them in, you know, the largest nonprofit in Western Washington. Uh, and, you know, I was serving my people in a mid-management position. And I didn't feel like I was actually serving them at my highest capacity, and that, which is what compelled me to go to school in the first place. So, um, yeah, so it was a really interesting experience. But what, what happened for me, a lot of things happened for me. First of all, I learned some necessary skills. Uh, I became a better writer. I became a better problem solver. I saw and learned how the others think uh, and how they show up with their processes. And, uh, you know, so it served me. And I also got an opportunity to share my experience because, you know, I talk everywhere I go. Like, I am not shy to talk about my experience. And so I got to impart some of my life experience into the lives of some of these young folks. Um, you know, but what I walked out, I walked out owning my life. I, I walked out of that institution owning my experience. I walked out of that institution feeling like they probably should have chosen somebody else to be a Truman Scholar because I'm pretty sure they didn't want a criminal and a junkie to be a public <laughs> servant leader in the nation. But they said, no, we know very well who we chose. And so, um, so I, I came out really sort of um, – feeling secure in my humanness and in my position in society. So it was a beautiful experience. It was multifaceted. Um, 
you know, but it started out really uncomfortable. I'll tell you <laughs> most and, good things do though. Well, that's true. And how do you feel now? Do you, is there still a bit of imposter syndrome uh, nagging at you? Um, on occasion, yes. Uh, you know, there are a lot of folks in society. So now I've elevated to this different place. I deferred my graduate studies uh, because of the work that I am being, you know, pulled to do in different places in the nation. Um, you got, you have these folks, you have these politicians, you have these prosecutors, you have these people that have been, you know, in these arenas for a long period of time. Um, and but I have to and. And they've been doing these things, so they have these built-in patterns, you know, these consented places that everybody is functioning from. And I, and I only say that because we all decide to agree that, oh, yeah, that guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about, so we're just going to follow that, and we're all going to adopt on that narrative. So that must mean the tr- that must mean that's the truth, right? And, and what I've had to really recognize is I'm a disruptor. Um, I'm coming in and disrupting with a different kind of experience, one that's lived. And so I often um, find myself um, saying, oh, maybe I don't know. Same kind of thing as the university campus. But then I'm like, yes, I do. I do know. And, and what that's doing is it's forging these alliances with folks and some very influential and very um, intelligent folks that are serving in some of these positions. And, and they're saying, no, you're spot on. And, you know, but I still have these voices, it, literal people, not the internal voices, you know, there are those too, but that's a whole other conversation for another show, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, there are these folks that, you know, come in and they're like, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're just coming in, like you caught this wave and you think, you know, and, And, you know, and I get to then follow back their experience and say, well, how do they know? They don't. They don't know. And so um, can you hear me? No, I can. I just uh, I got some background noise that I was like, is that you or is that me? What's going on? Well, there's a garbage truck right out in front of my house. Me too. We got synchronicity going on here. So I was wondering if it was your garbage truck or my garbage truck. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. So, um, so yeah, so there's a little bit of the imposter syndrome that, that still goes on, but you know, um, I have this, um, there's this psychotherapist who's dead now, but who's written a bunch of stuff. You may or may not know him, Albert Ellis. He created rational emotive behavior therapy and, uh, I have read and utilized a lot of his processes uh, since I've gotten clean. And what I've done is I've learned how to implement a process of rational questioning with myself, um, where I get the opportunity to bring myself back into the present moment. Um, you know, and, and the bottom line is, is like what I do anytime I start to feel uncomfortable, like maybe I want to quit is I just scale back. And in my voices of, of imposter uh, syndrome actually will sometimes try to encourage me to just give up. Um, but I get the opportunity to scale back and look at the step that is in front of me, just focus on what's next, what is mine, what's not mine, uh, how can I focus on mine and get mine done and show up for the people that are actually believing in me and ignore the rest of the crap that's going on. So, you know, my life is a constant battle between the personalities in here, the personalities out there, and just showing up for what I'm being asked to do. Self-care is so incredibly critical. How, yes. how do you stay level and make sure that you don't relapse? What is the self-care that 
Um, you've been you've been mountain climbing like straight up a great big wall of ice and rock. Holy yeah. crap! I, I I I rock climb. And I actually used to teach it, so I, I know that world reasonably well. But uh, what got you into um, into rock and ice climbing? Well, I'll tell you, rock and ice climbing. I'm afraid of heights. I'm terrified. <laughs> so of you're heights. A, you're a counterphobe then. Yeah. So I'm. Um, so I started backpacking. I started hiking. Essentially, I. The interesting thing is when I first got clean and I was in drug court, I was being called to the trees. Uh, it was the weirdest thing ever. I'm an urban, concrete metropolitan kind of girl and uh woods have never been my thing not that i've never in, interacted in them uh, but i initially started to be called to the trees it was this really weird spiritual thing and what happened for me when i was in those na- natural environments is is that they helped me to feel settled internally and it just continued to evolve and it evolved into hiking and then it evolved into backpacking and solo backpacking and and based on the work that i've done since I've gotten clean as I've been in these fields of service where I'm essentially absorbing other people's traumas and experiences. Um, and, and the mountains have allowed me to, to sustain that essentially for lack of a better phrase to sustain that and to, to complete my own foundation because I've had to, I've had to implement an entirely new foundation, right? Like try to teach myself how to be a strong child, how to feel, how to, how to have all of these experiences and to not feel abnormal in that, how to try to be a parent. And, and so um, then what happened is I joined this church and, and I met this guy and he taught me how to uh, mountaineer. Uh, he took me on some mountain climbs and, and there have been some experiences where I've missed summits because of my fear of heights. Uh, so, well, you know, cause I, I was afraid to rock climb or I was afraid to, you know, go up this ice wall or what have you. And so, um, so I have been hounding some of my friends since around the beginning of COVID to teach me some rock skills uh, so that I don't have to miss any more summits so that I can do some more challenging things. And I did this backpack trip um, in 2019 before I started school. And I found this amazing mountain called Bears Breast Mountain in Washington State. It's a granite mountain. It's amazing. And I decided I wanted to climb that, which is why I started to harass my friends about rock climbing. So I just went to Utah recently. And that's just what I do when I'm afraid of something. I want to face it. I want to learn about it. I want to create muscle memory around it so that it does not control my life anymore. That's not to say that I don't have a healthy relationship with what whatever the fear is. Um, but you know, sometimes those fears are irrational and sometimes they're not. And so that's what, you know, got me on the rock and ice wall. I'll be looking forward to maybe you teaching me some rock climbing skills if we ever get the opportunity to climb together. But, um, well, you know where I live, I live in the foothills of uh, the Rockies just outside of Calgary. So I can see the, I can see the mountains from my, my window. So absolutely get you up here, have you on the show live in in the studio. But uh, I'll show you around 100%. Awesome. I wanted to circle back. Um, there, there was a few, there's so many things <laughs> that, yeah. that, that you twigged with me. Um, what I'm hearing a lot from you is compassion. Hurt people, hurt people. If you that's knew right. better, you'd do better. And right. everybody has a story. I think that's the number one lesson when I'm talking with police officers, the wiser ones that are a little bit older. Uh, they're slow to judge, 
and and quick to be curious and try to understand where mm-hmm. people are coming from because everybody has a story. If you just snap yes. to judgment, you're going to screw up. I have a parking lot story of uh, when I was a realtor. I, I walk on the parking lot and there's a guy with his windows down and uh, there's a pile of garbage just outside of his window of oyster cans. <laughs> and so the, all I see is this asshole that's uh, littering in my parking lot, right? Yeah. And uh, so I give, him, I give him what for and all 12 feet tall of him gets out of the car. I'm like, oh boy, I just made a big mistake. Yeah. But, the, but the bigger mistake was that uh, when I heard him say, look, man, I'm just having a really bad day. I went, oh, I'm an asshole. I'm yeah. the asshole here, not you. I didn't take that moment to take a breath that hurt people hurt people, that everybody's got a story. And so I apologized to him. I helped him clean it up. And then we had a little chat, you know. And if you take that breath to realize that when somebody's doing something that is just off, whether it's throwing garbage out their window or whatever it is, there's a reason, not an excuse. And that's where people get hung up. They get hung up on, well, that's no excuse. I'm not talking about excuses. I'm talking about reasons and compassion. And instead of uh, proclaiming your superiority over somebody else, how could you do that? Well, okay, what you're saying is you are better than that person. Right. And when the truth is you're having a better day than that person. Right. Or a better week. But um, for those that need help, what, how do you, can you help somebody that doesn't know that they have a problem? Um, yes. However, I think that the word help is relative. Um, so you can always help someone by helping them to be aware uh, of, and the way that I do that is like I, I share my own experience. That doesn't mean that the person in the moment will identify with what I'm talking about. Um, I, I'm tr- I try to be really careful um, injecting my opinion into people's lives that aren't asking for it. Uh, but what I find is, is that often people give an open door to, you know, conversation where, you know, identification, I think, brings about awareness. And, and I think that is the beginning of help. Right. And, and I think that we label help in specific ways. Help means something that's going to solve all the time. Sometimes help is just planting the initial seed uh, that can lead to a solution eventually. So, so yes, I think, I think so, but that doesn't mean that it's going to manifest in an expedient kind of way. Um, you know, but it does sometimes give somebody an opportunity, even if they just say, Oh, wow, Jenny, that sounds like a really hard situation or wow, your life was really crazy. And they might walk away and not identify, but maybe they have an experience, you know, in a couple of weeks, maybe they, they're in active addiction and they just don't identify with the fact that they're an addict, but they remembered something about my story. And then they're able to say, Oh my gosh, I'm, that is what I read about in her story. And, or I heard her share about, and, um, maybe, maybe I might have to take a look at my own experience or my own decisions. At what point, what are the markers for a mental health intervention? Like, what is a mental health intervention? And at what point do you go, okay, this person doesn't seem to realize that they are in deep, deep water. (laughs) And um, uh, what do you do? What does that intervention look like? And when is it time to, to engage with that intervention? 
Yeah, I mean, so mental health is a really interesting thing. And and as you were asking that question, I was in, you know, quickly sort of like flashing through some experiences. Um, so, you know, I've had some personal experiences in my life with folks that, um, like if I'm talking about intervention on somebody else, um, I've had some experiences with folks in my life where, you know, when it's a personal experience, um, I might identify certain things uh, you know, out loud with the person, um, depending on who it is, they might be a little sensitive because they know what I did for work in the past and they don't want to be identified as crazy. So you have to be kind of sensitive. Um, and maybe, maybe you just, for me personally, I've sort of let some things go just to kind of observe and maybe not want to, you know, sort of infer that they were having some sort of episode. Whereas when I've done that often, um, their situation will exacerbate. It will become worse. And, uh, and then I have to take action. And depending on how much worse the situation becomes, I may have to, you know, uh, I guess participate in the process to have somebody hospitalized. So, um, you know, those can be, it can be hard because as family members, we want to, I think, you know, we definitely want someone to get help. Uh, but I think often with a family member, for example, it's there, you're the last one that they want to hear it from. So yeah, you're never uh, a prophet in your own land. I, um, nope. have, nope. to, I have many cousins with many stories, but I, I got another one that I have in mind when I asked you that question, uh, yeah. he's at a point where he can't feed himself. Uh, he can't hold a job, like no way in hell, uh, got into a negative feedback loop where Mm -hmm. because he's weird, he got isolated because he's isolated. He's getting weirder and, um, to, to full on hermit. And the, that isolation has gone so far for so many years that it's straight on break with reality Mm -hmm. because, um, facing the, the reality of the situation is so painful. He lives in a different reality. Where one where uh, he's the man, <laughs> yeah. but, but he isn't. Um, he doesn't even feed his cats, so they're starving to death. Um, like really, really serious. But what? So, what does a mental health intervention look like when somebody can't look after themselves? When uh, animals are being are starving to yeah. death uh, be, because he just cannot look after. Sorry, there's little people running. Oh, around that's 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 all good. It's all good. I usually have a couple going in the background here too, but um, oh, like like who shows up? Like yeah. I'm in, I'm in Canada. You're in the states. But for in your world, uh, is it yeah. uh, somebody like what? What kind of people show up? Uh, social yeah. workers and a couple of cops. Like who shows up? Well, that's okay. That's the interesting thing. So in Washington state, I can only attest to what happens in Washington state. Um, I could talk a little bit about California that we had to do an intervention on my uh, youngest child, um, which because of the extremity of her situation, um, it was an ambulance and police officers that showed up. Uh, But let's go to a situation such as what you're describing in Washington state. Um, you call community mental health that works with the county of your area uh, because the person becomes a danger to themselves. And so in Washington state, and I don't know a lot about the laws in California, um, but in Washington state, 
if a person is a harm to themselves or a danger to themselves or someone else, you can then create documentation with the county. Um, what the heck is it called? I don't remember the, the, the acronym, but um, you, you create documentation with them. They will have mental health counselors, very normal looking, un, you know, uniformed people come out and do an assessment on that individual. If they deem that the individual is incapable of appropriately caring for themselves, they will hospitalize the person in an attempt to stabilize. And then there is a court process that occurs uh, if they believe and you believe that the person still needs further support, um, they will keep the person hospitalized if the court deems that as necessary. And so um, in my experience, unless you have like sort of a violent experience with the person, the police won't show up, but the, uh, the county mental health um, uh, professionals will. Roger that. Well, we're just about at time, my friend. What's next for you? What do you got? What do you got cooking? Yep. So, um, a lot of good things happening. So, I'm working with uh, the state of Tennessee to implement. Um, well, to, let me change that word. Not implement, but to develop this national nonprofit, the network that I talked about on Tucker Carlson. We're actually rebranding the name. Um, it's a slow process. It's not folding out as quickly as we initially uh, expected, which, of course, is kind of the case. I am actually going to be moving back to Washington State for a period of time as we develop that. Uh, I won't be moving to Tennessee initially. Uh, maybe I will in the future. I don't know. Um, but, you know, uh, anytime you're doing great service work, it doesn't always come <laughs> with great financial benefits and uh, California is a little bit expensive. Um, I was previously working with a nonprofit here in uh, the Sandy North San Diego County. Um, but we have ventured off in different directions. And so, uh, which is what's compelling me to head back to Washington. I am going to attempt to do a couple things there. So I'm trying to create this national network of folks and folks similar to myself, not just addicts, but anybody that's overcome vulnerabilities and to find these uh, nonprofits that are spread throughout the nation that were created. And most of these programs are going to be created by people with lived experience whose focus is really growing people beyond the need for dependency. Um, and, and we're really going to try to change policies in our nation so that our social safety net is set up to actually help people grow beyond that need. Um, and, you know, and I, I'll be really honest with you, I want to try to work on creating or recreating policies that actually have a criminal element to addiction things because I think it's necessary for people to be arrested and to be separated. Um, what we're seeing in a lot of, you know, and you talked about it in Vancouver, but what we're seeing a lot in some of these metropolitan cities are, are that people like me are dying in feces and tents and open air drug markets and, and we're accommodating their decisions and their choices. And I'm certain the things that we're not highlighting are the foster systems and juvenile corrections, um, where the kids that are affected because their parents are in these situations, you know, are actually spiraling out of control in the same direction. And so, uh, you know, my, my goal really is to create a rehabilitative system network in our nation and, and get folks to sign on to helping me do that. Well, absolutely beautiful. And thank you for all the amazing work that you do. And Jenny, yeah. thank you for being here with me today and sharing your story with my audience. 
Thanks so much, Mark. I really appreciate your time and, and, uh, and our alignment. It's been really, really enjoyable. Thank you. You bet. And uh, please stay on the line. Of course, we will do this again. Okay. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring.